Right, so this morning we are looking at the topic of pornography and masturbation. So this might be a session where there is very little comment or questioning. I don't, you know, it's, it's, it's obviously a, um, a, a more awkward thing to be talking about. Um, but in our culture especially, this has become increasingly huge. Um, you know, and the internet has changed so much in this regard. So when I was a teenage boy, just pornography wasn't available. The only place it was available, I would have had to walk into a store, buy it from a top shelf, um, and all of the kind of embarrassment factors in that just meant a kind of good Catholic boy just wouldn't have done that. Not to mention the fact those would only have been sold to an adult anyway. But it just meant those things just weren't available. So my whole generation, it was much easier to be pure. Uh, teenagers growing up now, that is less and less the case. And even the last 10 years, the last five years, the availability, the putting all this stuff out there, means for those growing up now, it's going to be more and more difficult to be chased. So even though in a sense what we're looking at today is very obvious, so pornography, well, don't look at it, uh, masturbation, well, don't do it, um, we do need to have at least some systematic observation. So what I'm going to do, if you've hopefully read the document from the Bishop's Conference, that is actually an amazing document. It's, it's very thorough, it pulls no punches, um, you know, it's very clear in saying, yes, this is sin, yes, this is grave, even specifying the difference between types of use and production and, and passing on the material, that all of these are grave offences against human dignity. It classifies, you know, the types of different offences. Um, but it's still worth us, me, kind of summarising a few of those points with you as a group. Um, and I have on these notes tried to pull out from a kind of moral analysis some of the key things that might get questioned or that it's important for us all to be clear about. Um, and then if we have time, a few thoughts on confessional practice in terms of gradualism. I may return to that when we look at education and chastity at the end of the semester as well. So starting on page one of my notes, um, so I started with um, the catechism definition of lust, because um, obviously these two things, masturbation and pornography, they fit right in, um, both also logically but in the catechism's grouping of things. So what is lust? Lust is, lust is disordered desire for or inordinate enjoyment of sexual pleasure. Sexual pleasure is morally disordered when sought for itself, isolated from its procreative and unitive purposes. So if you remember a while back when we looked at the question of pleasure in the context of the ends and purposes of marriage and sexuality, pleasure isn't a problem. Pleasure is a gift from God. Pleasure is a sign of an activity properly completed. But here, the pleasure is removed from its proper context. It's removed 
from the activity it's supposed to be completing. So it's isolated from the unitive, that it's no longer a properly personal act, or personal in the sense of an interrelationship. Um, you know, it's becoming an individual act, not a personal act. <coughs> and isolated from the procreative, removed from any long-term consequences, I say, or so it's assumed. So, you know, the Bishop's Conference document talks about the many negative consequences, both for society, but also for the individual um, pornography. I've emphasized the word there, isolated from the person. That what have we been looking at from so many different angles, how this activity, this dimension of human existence, sexuality is personal. And here it's become individual, private, divorced from its proper uh, context. Okay, I then give the catechism's definition of um, masturbation. By masturbation is to be understood the deliberate stimulation of the genital organs in order to derive sexual pleasure. And then quoting um, the document of the CDF, Persona Humana, Humana of, so that was 1976, um, which reiterated a few points kind of right in the heart of the sexual revolution. Both the magisterium of the church in the course of the constant tradition and the moral sense of the faithful have been in no doubt and have firmly maintained that masturbation is an intrinsically and gravely disordered action. Then the deliberate use of the sexual faculty for whatever reason outside of marriage is essentially contrary to its purpose. For here, sexual pleasure is sought outside of the sexual relationship which is demanded by the moral order and in which the total meaning of mutual self-giving and human procreation in the context of true love is achieved. To form an equitable judgment about the subject's moral responsibility and to guide pastoral action, one must take into account the effective immaturity, force of acquired habit, conditions of anxiety or other psychological or social factors that lessen if not even reduce to a minimum moral culpability. Now I'll come back to those questions later in the lecture, but um, that's the, the, the definition there in the catechism. Then, um, quoting from that CDF document again, um, both the magisterium of the church in the course of a constant tradition and the moral sense of the faithful have declared without hesitation that masturbation is an intrinsically and seriously disordered the main reason is that whatever the motive for acting this way, the deliberate use of the sexual faculty outside normal conjugal relations essentially contradicts the finality of the faculty, for it lacks the sexual relationship called for by the moral order, namely the relationship which realizes the full sense of mutual self-giving and human procreation in the context true love. All deliberate exercise of sexuality must be reserved for, reserved to this regular relationship. So I've just quoted that 
second, although there's a fair bit of repetition, that phrase contradicting the finality of the faculty um, that is common to, to both pornography and masturbation. And then I indicate, you know, what my notes this morning I'm going to aim to cover. Um, the basis of this in scripture and tradition, because that is disputed by some revisionist theologians. The objective gravity of a sin and the subjective guilt, including invincible ignorance and imputable ignorance. Um, and the relevance and importance of confession and with that delaying or abstaining from Holy Communion if you haven't got to confession. So those are kind of the things I want to spell out as moral analysis issues. And before we do that, um, I've got two pages just kind of briefly summarizing some points on pornography. Um, so I don't know with the coronavirus what's going to happen, but there's um, we're supposed to be having a session a weekend with Integrity Restored in the spring semester. It is on one of the various schedule calendars. Um, <laughs> and sadly, I guess that group probably won't be coming. But um, the group that I'm footnoting there uh, on that page two um, is, is from their, their resources. Um, but there are, you know, you, we're fortunate to live at a moment in time when there are lots of different groups out there able to give good advice, able to help. Um, anyway, so that's where I've got these resources from. So start with the question at the top there, what is pornography? How are we going to define pornography? Um, um, the Supreme Court in 1964, um, the judge there said, I know it when I see it which I think is an interesting observation. So regardless of exactly how you're defining it, you know, that sometimes pornography isn't nudity, but it's a manner of portraying a person. Um, the Greek, or the, the Greek it's derived from, um, is it fornicators, pictures. Um, so that's the classic association of that word is about imagery, but it isn't just imagery. So we do get pornographic literature, you know, novels, um, and even, you know, audio as well. Um, that's seeking to stimulate outside of its original purpose. So clinical definition there. Pornography is any image, uh, so obviously here it's focusing on images, any image that leads a person to use another person for his or her own sexual pleasure. It is devoid of love, intimacy, relationship, or responsibility. It can be highly addictive. And then I pull out the key word use, um, which is you know, also in the bishop's document, how they're focusing on the definition. That whether it's with an image, with sound, with words, um, you are using another person for your sexual pleasure. So say porn isn't always nudity, 
but it is always using another for the sake of pleasure. Turning another person into an object, not engaging with the other person as a subject. And Bishop Finn, you know, sadly, um, no longer in, in public role, but had this very perceptive comment here. The problem with pornography is not that it reveals too much of the person exposed in the image, but that it reveals too little of the person. The person in the image is reduced to their sexual organs and sexual faculties, and thereby depersonalized. Uh, uh, you know, I, to repeat that, it's not that it reveals too much, it reveals too little. So when I've talked to youth about pornography, this is a point I would repeatedly make. Um, when you're tempted to use pornography, when you attempt to look at someone in a pornographic manner, to try and remind yourself of the fullness of what there is here. So I say here, when tempted to pornography, always remind yourself that there is a person you are viewing. So that person, who is it? Well, it's somebody's sister, probably, somebody's daughter, might well be somebody's mother. If I look and I am thinking this is a person, I'm gonna look at her differently. I'm not gonna be as likely to use her, to reduce her to just the pleasure that the viewing gives me. This person is an actor or actress. They're doing it for the sake of money. They are acting, they're not really enjoying this. And they are probably, as I say, entrapped in an unhappy lifestyle with drugs and little money. And that your viewing is contributing to the actress or actor being entrapped in that lifestyle. So back to Bishop Finn's point. Too little is revealed, not too much. And the more I remind myself of what that fuller much is, the less I'm going to be inclined to, to use that material. Okay, the damage of pornography. So I, I split that up into a few categories there. First, the damage to the viewer. So the user um, becomes self-oriented and selfish in the pursuit of pleasure. That the trigger of the pleasure is powerful um, and it changes you. If you've done the Augustine Way sessions here, um, then the brain becomes rewired and addicted and that addiction seeks more and more extreme images. That the satisfaction declines and the, the quest is to get something more and more extreme to satisfy which is why this thing of pornography increasingly slides to violent pornography or weird pornography because of how the brain is being rewired being damaged but the behavior leads to loneliness and emptiness it offers none of the satisfaction that true relationships and intimacy brings and obviously as a confessor this is one of the things that's very important to focus on so when somebody confesses masturbation when they confess pornography 
to ask them about their friendships, to ask them about their loneliness. And a, a big part of the remedy is to encourage them to be making the effort to, in a sense, get out there, to have, get a life. Um, to get something that will truly satisfy. All right, so it damages the viewer. Next cut, it damages society. So teenage girls get pressured to perform acts that their boyfriends see online. So acts that when I was a teenager, um, I think a lot of us didn't even know existed, if I'm honest. <laughs> um, now get seen so easily um, in pornography, but you know, even in typical soap operas and whatever get referred to much so, so often now with this, that these things become normalised. Um, young men find it increasingly difficult to relate to women normally. So yes, the girl gets pressured into things that the boy's seen, but the boy has lost increasingly the ability to relate to a woman in a normal, healthy way. That he's become used to seeing her as an object. I don't know if you've seen the dynamic among your friends, but I've read a number of studies showing an increasing trend of young men moving in with another male friend and not seeking steady relationships with women because they've got pornography and they've got just short-term engagements. So why would I want a relationship with a woman if, in a sense, those boxes are ticked for me in other ways? Young men will increasingly find it difficult to engage in sex in a healthy manner, even when married. Um, so this is going to have, in the decades ahead, more and more problems in in marriage from a pastoral perspective for us to deal with. And then in general, I sum up that, that porn warps society's view of normal sex. So it damages the viewer, damages society, and then it damages the actress and the actors themselves. But they develop devalued views of themselves uh, many never wanted this career, so to speak, and they can't leave it after entering. So the bishop's document you know, talked about the connection with human trafficking so often. Um, there are a number of shocking personal testimonies you can read out there of, of people who have tried to get out of this and the therapy they've needed for the damage that's been done to their sense of self-worth after acting in that Okay, so we had the Catechism's definition of masturbation. Here's its definition, top of page two, definition of pornography. Pornography consists in removing real or simulated sexual acts from the intimacy of the partners. That's where it belongs, the intimacy. In order to display them deliberately to third parties. Defends against chastity, 
because it perverts the conjugal act, the intimate giving of spouses to each other. It does grave injury to the dignity of the participants, actors, vendors, the public, since each one becomes an object of base pleasure and illicit profit for others. It immerses all who are involved in the illusion of a fantasy world. It is a grave offence. Civil authorities should prevent the production and distribution of pornographic materials. Now that definition of the catechism um, talks about de displaying it to third parties. Now the US Bishops Conference document that is reflecting on pornography after I guess at least two decades experience of this with the internet after the catechism came out also highlights um, pornography with, within marriage when one of the partners presume I'm guessing almost all the time the husband will have filmed their spouse or filmed them together and is showing that or viewing that outside of its original proper context. So it's not just showing it to third parties, but even within marriage, um, this is a thing. And that that is pornographic as well, because it's objectifying a person in viewing. So yes, it's your spouse. Yes, it's the one you have an intimate relationship with. But in the pornographic viewing, you have reduced them to an object. Okay, so just I've uh, got some bullet points there saying what sex has become um, according to the catechism's analysis. So it's become depersonalized, it's become trivialized. That you know what we've been talking about in this course is, is how important sex is. Well, it's become trivialized. That the sex act is perverted of its true dual function of personal union and openness to procreation. The person viewed is objectified. It offends the dignity of the person viewed. Um, and I haven't made this point yet in these notes, but a fantasy world that is there in the catechism's definition, that it removes the viewer from reality, leading men to abuse work time, because they're viewing this at work, leading to neglect children, neglect their spouse. Um, so there are a lot of men out there who are spending a lot of their time watching this. And that's time they should be giving to proper things. Um, but it's also damaging to us as the user, whether it's viewing pornography, but you know, it's the same general thing with impurity in general that it takes us out of the real world, it takes us into a fantasy world. And the real world is where we're supposed to be. The real world is what we're supposed to be living and sanctifying. And if we're in impurity, either in visual stuff or even in just our thoughts, we're not engaging with what God's given us. Okay, I'm, I'm going to read through some of those statistics there. Um, I'm sure many of you are familiar with this already, but just to, these are important for our reflection. So first I've got a little section there on frequency. 
So porn sites get more visitors each month than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined. Now that's a pretty amazing statistic. That 60% of all website visits are sexual in nature. That the word sex is the number one search for topic on the internet. The internet users spend an average of 14.6 minutes per day viewing adult, as it's called, content online. Internet porn users are 71% male and 29% female. Um, now that does mean there is a significant amount of female porn use. Um, from what I've read, they, there are different there is female porn out there that has a sometimes a plot line in it um, because there's a, a concern about um, that men engage in an even more objectivized version of porn, I think, than women do. That when women are wanting to fantasize, I think they're more likely to want to fantasize about a relationship, not just images. Um, but it is still the same process. It's a fantasy world, not the real world. It's objectifying, even if it's not just about the visual. Um, okay, and then two in five internet users visited an adult site in August of 2005. Um, so that's not just the volume of traffic, that's the individual. 40% of all of them in one month looked at a, a porn site. Um, which again is a pretty, pretty shocking statistic. Um, okay, the problem for youth. That American children begin consuming hardcore porn at the average age of 11. And in confession, you will pick up on this. You know, what's the kind of switch when you are hearing, so imagine you're in a parish for a decade and you're hearing a child's confession over many years, you will kind of reach a stage where things suddenly shift into a different gear. The age of 11, my goodness, I don't think in my generation it would have been anything like 11. Um, four out of five 16-year-olds regularly access porn. So, you know, what are they doing? What are they thinking is normal? You know, the last seminar I taught at in the UK for a number of years, I used to get public transport on the way there. Um, and the timing of when I would get there, I would come through the bus routes when the children were emptying out of school. Um, and there was frequently a group of boys, um, I don't know, maybe I say a group, 30 that must have emptied out of school that were all coming on my same route and one of the things they would quite publicly be talking about would be the porn sites and where's the best one to look at, the, the latest thing someone's seen, all spoken about loudly enough to be overheard by others with no sense of awkwardness, shame um, it's just normal Okay, and then to get an idea 
uh, of why so at the top of the page there the catechism quote said civil authority should do something about this well money um, the porn industry is a 97 billion business a billion dollar business worldwide and in the US alone 13 billion dollars Okay, and then focus that a little, bit different, a little differently. Every second, so every second, over $3,000 is being spent on porn. Every second, over 28,000 internet users are viewing porn. Every second, 372 internet users are typing adult search terms into search engines. And every 39 minutes, a new porn video is being made somewhere in the US. And again, that's a statistic from 14 years ago, so we can probably boost all those numbers to a fair degree. And then related to this, so back to the thing of normal relationships being damaged. 87% um, of university students um, have virtual sex mainly mainly using instant messenger, webcam, and the telephone. So that it's not just promiscuous sex that is our problem, but depersonalized sex when it's through the internet in some means. Um, which on the level of what's that going to have done to a future marriage in terms of the, the bad habits, it's pretty serious. Okay, that's all I've got to kind of summarise on, on porn. Anyone, any observations? I'm guessing in general terms, this isn't new. Um, I guess I was just a little surprised at how much higher the uh, rate of use is among men than women. I mean, I knew it was higher than women, but I didn't know it was like, 70-something percent. I've read other statistics that would push that statistic even more in a male direction. Really? Um, when you hear confessions, it's amazing how different men and women are. Um, and when women confess sins related to sex, they will confess things that as a man I wouldn't have even dreamt of as categories. Um, so they will confess a lack of emotional involvement or a lack of personal things. Whereas for the men, we are so inclined to objectify, to focus on the visual. Um, men and women are different. We sin differently. Um, and I think because porn is primarily a visual thing, is therefore primarily a male thing. Our triggers are more visual. Any other comments?
can sometimes, as pastors, be terrified at the problem facing us in terms of marriage, in terms of all kinds of pastoral problems. Whenever I've reflected on this, this is more terrifying than anything in terms of its frequency and um, the impact out there. But um, I would say I've, you know, I've, my pastoral contacts haven't put me in many, my diocese is full of a lot of old people, so I, I haven't had as much contact with this as I'm sure other priests would, but even in my circles and parishes, I've been able to help a significant number of men out of this, and it isn't that difficult to do, particularly with the amount of resources out there. But we do need to have it in mind as this is one of the things I need to be doing. I need to be talking about this, preaching about this, notes in the newsletter need to refer to this. Um, and obviously how you refer to something in a sermon will need to be phrased in a way that the, the eight-year-old has no idea what you're talking about, um, but the 20-year-old does. confession you only ever deal with an individual and one of the bizarre things you will find with families and couples is you will hear a sequence of people come to you and you will often realize this must be a family this must be a husband and wife and one of them will confess things that the other makes no reference to at all and maybe doesn't even think this is a sin or they're pretty or they're just not going to confess it and even though you're pretty sure that this is the spouse, this is related, that you can't go there. You can't even ask a question, maybe possibly, um, in confession, one person at a time. Um, and with men, those I have helped, they're only mentioning it at all because they realize there's a problem. And so in that sense, in my experience, I'd say usually it's not been that difficult. The, the, the difficulty is dealing with the addiction, with the habits, um, and we can help, but like any change, it's not automatic. Just to say this is a solution doesn't mean it's going to be effectively applied. Okay, let's move on. So, you know, that's just a very brief comment about pornography. A few pages here on masturbation. Um, and the page four and five, I'm just wanting to try and briefly rebut. So particularly after the council, there were various revisionist theologians going around saying, oh, this isn't really a sin, or it's just normal, 
or it's normal to go through this as a teenager. Um, and as I'll go on, yes, there are factors where the subject of guilt is vastly reduced because of things, but it is a sin, um, and objectively speaking, it's a grave sin. And that this is the unanimous teaching of the tradition. Okay, so page four. Masturbation in scripture and tradition. So the tradition, as I say, the tradition is unanimous in regarding masturbation as a sin. You know, we don't get any patristic author raising any question about this. Even though, as we've commented before, on almost any issue, there are some of the patristics arguing with each other about all kinds of things, not on this. And I note that while different scriptural texts get cited differently by different saints and theologians with respect to different sin, things, sins, the tradition consistently does condemn the same activity. So, yes, masturbation is wrong. Which bit of the Bible I'm going to pluck as my reference point, I might differ on. But I'm not going to pluck the Bible to get a different conclusion. For example, they're referring to Onan. Um, so he's been cited both with respect to contraception and with respect to masturbation. Um, but actually, as I'm going to indicate, that's not an either or. Um, actually, I think it can apply to both quite simply. Then I note with respect to summarizing the tradition, when contrasted to chastity's goal, it's clear that unnatural acts, such as masturbation and contraception, both fail to achieve the end of chastity, namely union and procreation. And so if we have, as I've been trying to outline in this course, a vision of what its purpose is all about, then it's clear that this just does not fit that purpose. It's not a personal activity. It's not a unitive activity. It's not a procreative activity. Okay, so if we are going to look to the Bible, what might we look to? And I've put three little subheadings there. First, generally, lust. Um, so the Lord Jesus repeatedly condemns spiritual lust, not just physical. So quoting Matthew, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, fornication, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile them. So, you know, this is what the Lord, it's not the only thing the Lord talks about, but this is part of what he talks about. You've heard what, that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So, looks lustfully. And then in the Old Testament, there's um, a verse from Job that's often pointed to in this regard. I've made a covenant, an agreement, a promise with my eyes. Then how could I look upon a virgin? Um, and he, he doesn't say look to, on a virgin. You know, he, it's pretty obvious what he means, yes? And sometimes it's not coherent to imagine that the Lord can condemn spiritual lust but not condemn the physical act of masturbation. Um, now, on the bibliography I gave you at the start of the semester for this topic, there was a very helpful book called 
every young man's battle. Um, and it's by evangelicals. Um, and you know, we know when we use evangelical resources, because they don't have nature, natural law, they often, and they don't have the saints, they often don't have a depth of pastoral reflection. But it's a very good summary um, on practical tools of how to get out of habits of masturbation. But the thing that book fails in, and I noted that on the bibliography I gave you, um, it fails in its analysis of scripture because it's so fixed on this sola scriptura thing that it can't find a single verse that refers to masturbation. And so it says, well, lust is a sin. And so if you can masturbate in a non-lustful manner, then that might be okay somehow. Um, but that is, it just isn't coherent with the whole package. You know, if we, if we see that there's not, we're not plucking random verses here, we're seeing the package that scripture is giving us. So what that means is that book, you can't give that book to a teenager because they're going to get confused. Um, okay, the second point there, in terms of scripture, the dignity of the body. So St. Paul calls for spiritual purity because of the dignity of the body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God? You are not your own. So what we do with our body has to be appropriate to the a person of the spirit. And then specifically, um, and I list it last because I don't think the church's position hinges on this text, um, what is in the manuals referred to as the sin of onanism. So, Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife. And she was a widow at this stage. So his brother had died and performed the duty of a brother-in-law to her, what's called the, the Leverite duty to raise a son for your, your deceased brother, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So when he went into his brother's wife, he spilled the semen on the ground, lest he should give offspring to his brother. And what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, and he slew him also. So, the means was masturbation. The end was contraception. So evil on both counts. Now, you know, the end doesn't justify the means, but sometimes something will be wrong, both because of the end and because of the means. And Onan fails in both of these categories. So I don't think this works for only one of the two. Um, the text from John Kipley that um, I footnote there, he makes the point that, so in the broader context of the narrative there in Genesis, there were three people involved, Judah, Shelah, and Onan. They all violated the Leverite duty, but only Onan was slain by the Lord because only Onan committed the specific sin of masturbation. So there has been a revisionist attempt to say, oh, Onan's sin was only about failing in the Leverite duty. 
that doesn't really fit in the rest of the context of the passage. And then literally the word, so spilled as semen, the Hebrew verb, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, shiktek, um, never means to spill or waste, rather it means to act perversely. As perversion or con corruption consists in the action itself, not precisely in the result or goal of his act. I deny his love right So that's some brief comments attempting to indicate that this is grounded in the tradition. Um, okay, page five. Um, a few things here on this page about the objective gravity of the sin of masturbation before we think of the subjective individual personal guilt. So I see, despite some post-conciliar writers attempting to argue that masturbation was normal or not serious, the church holds that sex is important. So high values, I plucked this phrase from the text there, from the CDF, um, SCDF rather, because it was a sacred congregation at that stage. So this is the same document I quoted earlier. According to Christian tradition and the church's teaching, and as right reason also recognizes, the moral order of sexuality involves such high values of human life that every, every direct violation of this order is objectively grave. Therefore, there's no poverty of matter with respect to sex. So I contrast, um, I hope you remember from your fundamental moral theology, Poverty of matter. Some matter can fail to be grave due to small quantity. So in general, theft is grave matter. Theft is a mortal sin. But stealing an apple would generally be considered such a small quantity that actually it isn't grave matter. And what the church is saying here is that actually sex is such a thing you can't have a little bit of it. You can't have a little bit of adultery. Um, it has such high values, it engages you in such a way that objectively speaking, it's always grave matter. Now subjectively speaking, your personal guilt, that's a secondary question, but objectively speaking, it always is grave. There's a few things there, um, you know, and in that case, they're all epistles, um, emphasizing the, the gravity, not the lightness of sexual sins. You know, St. Paul talks a lot about this in the midst of a promiscuous, and, you know, we know from images on Greek vases and whatever else, a pornographic culture. But I note there at the bottom, that list of bullet points, not all grave sins are equally grave. So the Catechism says, the gravity of sins is more or less great, that murder is graver than theft. One must also take into account who is wronged, that violence against parents 
is itself greater than violence against a stranger. So there's a whole bunch of things that we can say, all of these are grave matter. All of these are in themselves mortal sins. But that doesn't mean they're all equal. Some are more serious than others. Okay, then I attempt, I say, consider and possibly attempt to rank the varying gravity of these sins. So, sex with a nun. I think that would tick the box of sacrilege. Sex with a prostitute, i.e. fornication, sex with someone you're not married to. Masturbating with another. Masturbating alone. Masturbating with your wife. And all three of those would then be the unnatural act. Then looking lustfully at the woman next door. Or thinking about sex with the woman next door. But that will depend on also what your thoughts are of with her. Um, your thoughts covers quite a bit. So any one of those categories would be grave matter. But I would be attempting to indicate in that list they're not all equally grave. or questions or practically speaking what does eat not equally grave mean I think pastorally it means when we're talking about it we don't want to create the impression that masturbation is as serious as murder okay. when you're hearing confession it might be that somebody's anger and resentment to their father might actually be significantly more serious than the masturbation and pornography they confess. Um, so for us as confessors, that should be how we're listening and processing, um, but also in how we articulate the significance of these. What we're banging the pulpit about um, we shouldn't say, oh, well, it's all, all sex is grave matter, therefore that's what I must be banging on about all the time. Um, there are other things that are, are grave as well. So I think it's about addressing priorities. Yeah, I think about addressing priorities, but also in terms of presenting the coherence of the Catholic vision here. So sometimes the Catholic vision will get mocked on this point. Um, and part of how we show it's coherent, that we don't think that masturbating is more serious than murder, or just as serious as murder, is actually have an awareness of this, that just because they're all mortal doesn't mean they're equally serious. Okay, subjective guilt. Page six. So, masturbation, pornography, 
Um, these are contrary to the tradition. They are objectively grave. But what's your subjective guilt? So the Catechism and the CDF note that various factors can reduce subjective guilt for this objectively grave sin. To list four there, affective immaturity, so immaturity in your affections, your emotions, your, your passions, the, the type of integration that we hope to see in an adult and isn't there in a screaming, tantruming child or teenager. Um, that that lack of affective maturity is one of the things that reduces somebody's guilt for what objectively is wrong. Anxiety. So stress, anxiety, um, which can be linked with the affective immaturity, um, but that affects people's ability to judge, act freely. Psychological or social factors, and the force of acquired habit. And I say to these we might add the ignorance of sin caused by, and then I, pulling from St. Thomas, um, give three categories he gives. So here he's talking about why people don't know truths of the natural law, but I think they also help in each of these categories factors that aren't just about knowledge but help us think about the subject of guilt. So by evil persuasions i.e. false argumentation. So many teenage Catholic boys have had others tell them that masturbation is normal, that their secular friends will have told them this, their high school counsellors will have told them this, even sadly often in Catholic schools, and tragically a bad priest may have told them this. Either a priest who's somehow trying to smother his own conscience, or a priest who did bad theology. Um, so what's the guilt in that teenage boy who's been told these false arguments? Well, that's gonna hugely affect our ability to think he's actually fully guilty. I say sometimes, however, they might be, have what the Catechism calls blameworthy ignorance because they choose to accept such false argumentations or they don't make the moral effort to think authentically. So when I hear somebody tell me something that is convenient, I have a duty to think, well, yes, that's convenient. Yes, that's kind of what I want to hear. But is it true? And if I haven't made that effort to think properly, then I can be responsible um, for the decisions I choose, to, the, the ideas I, I choose to have. Next category from St. Thomas, by vicious customs, I say visible in the behaviors and examples around them. So, you know, modern teenagers grow up amidst a sexually corrupt world. That's what they're out there seeing. So it's not just the explicit arguments they hear, but it's the examples, the customs they see around them. 
This affects their ability to know the truth. And therefore with that affects any degree of guilt in behaving in what is objectively brilliant. And then finally, corrupt habits, St. Thomas refers to, that eventually one's own sins clouds one's intellect and you can't judge properly anymore. But I note, if caused by your previous sins, then your resulting ignorance is blameworthy. So yes, your habits can affect your ability to act freely, but sometimes those habits are in you by your free choice. Um, so habits, habitus is something that needs subtle analysis. Um, and obviously with all of these things, only God knows an individual before us. Um, but all of these are factors. And then lastly, I note on that page that guilt is frequently reduced, but not wholly removed. So the final 1997 Latin text of the Catechism was edited to clarify the issue of guilt. The 1992 edition said that the factors listed at the top of the page can remove guilt. It said even extenuate moral culpability. Whereas the final edition said that guilt can be reduced to a minimum rather than removed completely. And that was quite a deliberate editing on the part of the writers of the Catechism. So yes, for all the reasons I've given there, there would be cases, I'm sure, where guilt would be completely absent. But the Catechism took a step back from putting that in there to primarily as a, a kind of default position. And I think that in general that's probably true of a lot of sin in our lives, that it's often reduced to a minimum rather than not there at all. Any comments on this page? So obviously this affects how we hear confessions. It affects what we're thinking of as we're hearing confessions. Um, sorry. This is sort of maybe more something we should have thought over fundamental moral, but so this last point under Aquinas of corrupt, having corrupt habits, how that reduces one's culpability, but then you're still blameworthy for building up to that habit. What does I guess, how does that moral analysis work, or like in the confessional, what would that look like? Um, in the confessional, maybe let's try to separate those two questions. Okay. So the first question was, how does that happen? Was that, was that your question? Yeah, I guess, what is that, what does it mean to say that you're blameworthy for the ignorance of those actions that went into building up the habit of your own free choice, but then you're not necessarily, your culpability is lessened because of this habit now? Like, yeah. Okay, let's put it in reverse. There are some habits I have 
that I somehow acquired with little choice of my own. So habits I have that were due to my parental upbringing. Um, and from a perfect family, then those will be lots of good habits. Um, in reality, we have a mixture of good and bad habits from our parents. The habits I have that weren't my own choice, I'm not blameworthy for in how they prevent me thinking properly, judging properly, and even in terms of inclinations, stop me freely being able to, to choose, or at least would reduce my guilt in what I'm choosing. Because I have a disposition to something that's wrong, and that disposition was put into me by my parental training. Bad parental training. That's different from the habits I have from actions, sins I have chosen and unknowingly chosen. come back to the example of gluttony because it's a fairly tidy example but um, that I, I overeat and I choose to overeat and I choose to overeat repeatedly and I reach a stage where I'm no longer even thinking about this anymore I'm no longer even able to even able to think clearly about it my, my, as St. Thomas puts it my intellect has become clouded and there are habits in me not from my parental upbringing but as a result of my behavior and my freely chosen behavior. And then I can't say in the judgment, oh, it's not my fault, I was inclined to that sin. Well, no, actually it was my fault. The, in part, this does depend on your vision of virtue. So I can remember the Dominicans teaching me in Washington, D.C. Um, being unhappy with a Franciscan presentation of virtue and the passions. So for Bonaventure, the passions sit in the will, but they don't sit in the passions, so the virtues. So you can train the will, but you can't train the passions. Whereas from a Thomistic perspective, actually, your passions aren't just an impediment to free action, but they're also tools of free action when you've trained them properly. But conversely, the element of my passions that's disordered, that is my fault, actually doesn't remove my freedom, but actually is just an expression of my freedom in my past action. The catechism on this very clearly sides with St. Thomas. So it very clearly says that um, virtues are seated in the passions, that the passions can be trained. Um, and that the goal of the virtuous life is this integration of the passions and the intellect and the will, not just the will overriding the passions. Subjectively, or rather in confession, 
that just means we, we have more of a motive of wanting to give people indications of how to grow in the virtues. There's also a message of hope, because what I'm telling someone is, yes, the first five times you resist this sin are going to be the five toughest times, but you'll be building a different structure in your passions by that repetition. And so it will become easier to be good, even though it is going to be hard at the beginning. Being forgiven. When they are forgiven, they also have that ongoing sorrow for their sins. Uh, do you think that contributes to this statement that guilt is not completely removed? I think that's a different point. So, guilt being completely removed, it is removed by absolution. So it's not that guilt remains in that sense. It's whether even before confession, even before repentance, there are some people for whom there is no guilt there for what is objectively a sin. Because somehow subjectively, the fact they didn't know wasn't their fault. So it's, it's a different point. Whereas my lifelong ongoing sorrow for something I did to somebody when I was 19 years old, then that sorrow I carry through my life is just a motivation to, to not do similar things to other people the rest of my life. Okay, let's, because we're running out of time here. Um, so really the last thing I want to do is this last page with you. Um, and here I am drawing from St. Thomas. Um, the question is knowing whether you're in a state of mortal sin. So um, you're bound to confess in confession mortal sins. Well, how do I know whether I've committed a mortal sin? So there's a type of progressive catechesis that at least was out there. It probably moved beyond that. But that said, well, I didn't know, I don't know whether I'm, it was a mortal sin, therefore I don't know whether I need to confess it. Well, what does St. Thomas say about all this? Knowing whether you're in a state of mortal sin after pornography self-abuse. So I say some people attempt to excuse themselves from confessing impurity because they tell themselves, I don't know whether it was actually a mortal sin. I don't know if I fully consented or if I had reduced guilt. And thus I don't need to confess venial sin, so I'll just not mention this in confession. Well, let's remember what full knowledge means. So you know, that's one of the three conditions of mortal sin. It means that you know it's a sin. So quoting the Catechism, mortal sin requires full knowledge. It presupposes knowledge of the sinful character of the act of its opposition to the law of God. Now that doesn't mean 
you explicitly know it is destroying the life of grace in your soul, that it is mortal sin per se. Then quote the um, philosopher Elizabeth Anscombe, what it means is that you've got to know what you're doing, not in the sense that what you are doing is mortal sin, but in the sense that what you are doing is putting poison in your husband's soup. Yes, I'm not ignorant that it's poison. I'm not ignorant of the fact I'm putting it in his soup. But that doesn't mean I'm thinking, oh, this is a mortal sin. I'm thinking I'm poisoning my husband. Um, yes. So it does not mean that you explicitly choose to reject God in this act. Otherwise, as I say, contempt for God would be the only mortal sin. So you don't need to be thinking about God at all to commit a mortal sin. It can be a sin against your neighbour, a sin against yourself. So then I have a block quote from the SCDF on this. There are those who go so far as to affirm that mortal sin, which causes separation from God, only exists in the formal refusal directly opposed to God's call. A person therefore sins mortally not only when his action comes from direct contempt for love of God and neighbour, but also when he consciously and freely, for whatever reason, chooses something which is seriously disordered. Okay, then my last bullet point about this full knowledge section. An act performed in vincible ignorance is, as the Catechism puts it, indirectly voluntary. So it's my fault I didn't know it was a sin, I have vincible ignorance. I am ignorant, but it's my fault I'm ignorant. It's vincible ignorance. And that means it's indirectly voluntary. And therefore the guilt is imputable to me. Okay, I then have a, a little section here summarizing a point both from St. Thomas um, and from the Council of Trent. I put four points there, some reasons that indicate this conclusion. First, we cannot feel grace, thus we cannot feel whether or not we're in a state of grace. So grace is a supernatural reality. You cannot touch it, you cannot know whether or not it's there. Secondly, self-deception leads us to make inaccurate judgments about ourselves, which is a continual problem in the spiritual life. You know, the saints talk about this. Third, and a bit more technically, a person might perform an outwardly good act, but do it under an isolated actual grace, not flowing from the possession of a sanctifying grace. Thus, the doing of a good deed doesn't prove that a person is in a state of grace. So I fed the hungry, I did something that is in itself good. Well, that doesn't proves sanctifying grace is there. That might have been an impulse of actual grace, which is ordered towards sanctifying grace, but it doesn't mean I engage with this in such a way that actually sanctifying grace became habitual. Fourth point, nonetheless, St. Thomas says, a person might conjecture that he is in a state of grace if certain actual outward indicators suggested, such as delighting in God. But he adds, this knowledge is 
imperfect. So practically speaking, I say it follows that we should be cautious in assuming that we're not in a state of mortal sin, especially if we realize that we've performed an act that is grave in its matter. Okay, so we've got one minute left. So what am I saying there? If you've done something objectively sinful, get to confession. Um, that's kind of a, a page of theological analysis heading to that, that fairly straightforward point. I'm going to have to be very brief. <laughs>